Good morning, church. If you have your Bibles, let's open those up to Matthew 26. Matthew 26, we're going to be looking at verses 36 to 56 this morning. Before we do, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, you are worthy of so much more praise than we are capable of giving you this morning. Lord, I pray that you have been glorified through every note that was played, every word that was sang or sung. And Lord, I pray that as we continue our worship of you this morning through opening your word and spending time in your message, I pray that the Holy Spirit would prepare our hearts to hear what you would have for us as we all experience difficult times, as we all face struggles at different parts of our lives, Lord, I pray that we would take our cues from Jesus as he experienced grief that grieved him to the point of death, as he's getting ready to face the cross, and he came to you. I pray that our hearts would be inclined towards that as well. I pray the Holy Spirit would open our eyes to see all areas of need where we need you in our life, Lord, and I pray that we would open-handedly put that before you and that we would leave it there. So as we dive into your word, Lord, guide us, lead us. I pray that you're glorified through it. It's in your son's name that I pray. Amen. Okay, so last week we saw Jesus and his disciples leaving their celebration of the Lord's Supper or the Passover and the Lord's Supper and as they're making their way out, Jesus makes this announcement that each and every one of them would fall away from him this evening. All right, this is something that had been foretold in a prophecy way back in the book of Zechariah. And Jesus is making this known to the disciples. And it's obviously something that's very difficult for the disciples to hear. Peter and all the rest of them, they all deny what he just told them was prophesied about in scripture. They said, no, that's not going to happen. But Jesus knows how this night is going to unfold. And he wants to lay out a foundation of restoration for these guys before all this goes down. He wants them to know that he still loves them, failure and all. I mean, it's amazing how quickly you can get inside your own head when you drop the ball on something. When you've got sin in your life, you know it's sin, it's something that's plagued you for a while, God is very clear in his word that we're not supposed to do that, and yet we constantly fall into that. It's easy for us to think that God is done with us as we continue in these sin struggles. I would imagine that it's even worse when someone tells you that you're going to sin. Right? You're going to fall away from me. You're going to run away. You're going to fail me tonight. I can imagine what that would do in their mind as they went from this place, as Jesus is crucified and as he stays in the grave for three days. I can't imagine what would be going through their head. He told us all this was going to happen. He told us we were going to abandon him. So it would be easy for the disciples to question everything about their relationship with Christ once he's resurrected. 
right? Is he going to be angry with me after this? Right? Would, would he even allow me to be one of his disciples now that I've abandoned him? I don't think I'm worthy to follow him anymore. You know, what is he going to do when I see him again? But when it comes to the gospel, all we need to know and be quick to understand is that our association with Jesus has never been about our worthiness. Okay? We aren't worthy. We never have been. We never will be worthy of what Jesus did for us because of our sin. Jesus went to the cross so that he could impart his worthiness on us so that we could stand before God in his righteousness, not ours. So there's no part of us that is now or ever will be worthy of Christ. And so with this in mind, Jesus wants his disciples to know that their relationship will continue. He wants them to know, guys, you're going to screw up tonight. I just want you to know that. You're going to screw up tonight. And when I'm resurrected, I'm going to meet you in Galilee. Right? Restoration. The promise of coming back together in that relationship. Make sure you're there. That's what Jesus set up for his brothers in ministry last week. That's what we looked at. This week, we're going to witness the final hour that Jesus has uh, before all these predictions begin to come true. Right? He's got one hour left of freedom in this earthly life before his resurrection. So I want you to think about this scenario for a moment. Okay? You are about to be betrayed by someone who's pretended to be your friend for three years. All right? That betrayal is going to lead you into custody. And as you're going into custody, your other friends are going to abandon you completely. Then you're going to be put through a sham of a trial. And once that is over, you're going to be beaten and then executed on a cross. And on top of all that, you know you're the atoning sacrifice that enables restoration of humanity's relationship with God the Father by enduring the full punishment of all that sin on yourself. Okay? That's what you're facing. Given your standard habits of how you act in your life right now, how do you see yourself spending this last hour? Right? What would you do? The gospel shows us what Jesus does with that last hour or so. Jesus spends that time among friends, but he also spends that time alone with God the Father in prayer. Let's look at it together. Follow along with me. Matthew 26. We're going to start in verse 36 and we're just going to read through 46 for now. It says there, Then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he told the disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. Taking along Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. He said to them, I am deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and stay awake with me. Going a little farther, he fell face down and prayed, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. Then he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. 
He asked Peter, so you couldn't stay awake with me one hour? Stay awake and pray so that you won't enter into temptation. The spirit is uh, willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, a second time, he went away and prayed, my father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And he came again and found them sleeping because they could not keep their eyes open. After leaving them, he went away and prayed a third time, saying the same thing once more. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? See, the time is near. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up, let's go. See, my betrayer is near. And so, after the Passover meal, Jesus and his disciples, they begin uh, what appears to be their journey back to Bethany. Right? If you'll remember, they've been staying in Bethany, which is about two miles away from Jerusalem. And they've been traveling over the Mount of Olives to get to Jerusalem every day. And so they've settled in, the day is over, and they're on their way back to Bethany, or so it would appear. On their way back, Jesus and the disciples come to a place called Gethsemane, right? This is a place that is on the Mount of Olives. Um, It's on across the Kidron Valley from Jerusalem. The name Gethsemane literally means oil press, okay? Oil press, And the reason why all this is there is because there was a grove of olive trees in this area, and so they would process olive oil in this area. So the Garden of Gethsemane was a place where olive oil would have been processed. And Jesus and his disciples go there often. John's Gospel informs us in chapter uh, 18 that Judas knew to bring the company of soldiers and some of the officials and the chief priests and the Pharisees there because of just how regularly he and the disciples would meet there to pray and to do their studies and stuff. Okay, so this is a very common place for them to be. So coming to this place, again, on their way home, Jesus has most of the disciples sit and wait while he goes off to pray. He only takes three of them further into the garden, right? He takes Peter, James, and John, all right? So these three guys are an interesting bunch, right? To say the least. They seem to be the three guys who get rebuked the most by Jesus, all right? When he's calling people out, if you'll search through the scriptures, more often than not, If it's not Peter, it's going to be either James or John that he's calling out. And yet, these three also appear to be his closest friends. These are the three people that when something goes down in Jesus' life, these are the three men that are by his side. Remember, these are the same three guys that he took up with him on the mountain at the transfiguration. Right? So they're there to pray. All of a sudden, Jesus is transfigured, and you have Peter and James and John sitting there. Peter says something about building tents for Jesus and Elijah and Moses, and God says, shh, listen to him. You stop talking, right? Peter rebuked once again. And so we see that these three men are instrumental in Jesus' life. They're just there constantly when big things are happening. They have had the opportunity to see his divine nature in a way that no one else on earth was able to see. Right? When he was transfigured, when he was glorified, they saw the epitome of his divinity, at least as far as a human mind could handle this side of the cross, 
They saw all of that. And then to bookend the hypostatic union, remember the hypostatic union means fully God, fully man, all in one person. So he's a 200% human, right? So to bookend that, they're also going to get to see his humanity, right? His humanity is what we see here. They see a massive struggle in Jesus's life. They see him burdened to the point where he feels like he's going to die. It's, it's beyond what is about to happen to him as far as the, the trial and the beating and all of that. Some people attribute the burden that he has to his impending death. Right? He knows he's about to die, and that does strange things to people. Right? Like he can, they, they, they would say that he can prophesy about his death from a distance and, and have confidence in how he's going to approach that. But now the hour is near. And he realizes that, and so it's causing him all this struggle. They say he knows the brutality of what he's about to face, and he doesn't want to experience the pain that's associated with it. And I'm sure that that's got to be part of it, right? I mean, crucifixion is a particularly brutal means of execution. I mean, it is cruel upon, upon, upon cruel, okay? And so... On top of that, you have the beating that he's going to take before he ever gets on the cross. And many people die just from the scourging, okay? Just from this beating that he's going to take, many people die just from enduring that. And so it's certainly, you know, the physical nature of his life for the next 18 hours or so is nothing to scoff at. And so I'm sure that that probably has something to do with it. But the real struggle that he's going through here is not physical, it's not about the suffering that he's about to endure. It's the spiritual suffering that is coming that has him grieved to the point of death. When Jesus is on the cross, he takes on the full wrath of God for sin. All of it. That's what's in the cup. When he's talking about, let this cup pass for me. In the Old Testament, when they talk about the cup, it is always talking about God's wrath. God's wrath is in this cup. And Jesus is asking the Father to let that cup pass from him if possible. For the first time in eternity, Jesus is going to be separated from that connection with the Godhead that he has in, in, enjoyed for eternity. Right? For the first time in eternity, He's no longer going to experience the love of God. He's going to experience the wrath of God. And he's going to experience the full wrath of God as he pays the price for our sin on our behalf. How would you like to know that that's what's coming for you? How would you respond if you knew that within the next few hours of your life, that is what you had to look forward to. Not just that it's coming, but exactly when it's coming and what it means. Jesus knows it's coming, and it burdens him to the point of death. And so he takes that burden to the Father. He asks his three friends to keep watch with him, pray with him, and then he leaves 
The rest of them, he leaves them there and he goes a little bit further into the garden so that he can petition the Father on his own. If it is possible, let this cup pass for me, yet not as I will, but as you will. And apparently, in the commentaries that I read this week, there are many people who are made extremely uncomfortable by this weakness that they see in Jesus here. By his willingness to go before the Father and ask for the cup to pass, if it's at all possible. I mean, apparently there's been much ink, so to speak, spilled on this issue. Some have gone so far as to suggest that this moment of grief and the request to have the cup passed suggests that Jesus isn't actually the Messiah at all. But I don't, I don't understand how anyone lands there given what we know about Jesus and even what is said about what is said in this prayer. Like even what he said to God the Father in this prayer. We have Jesus being both fully God and fully man, right? So that 200% hypostatic union, big word. That means that he experiences, as a man, he experiences the sinful world just like we do. Right? He experiences grief. Right? As his friends die, as bad things happen to people around him, he experiences that grief. He feels burdened. Right? He experiences fear. Right? Now this fear is the fear of the wrath of God, which is a good fear. We should all have that fear. Right? If, if you don't fear the wrath of God, that should only be because you have salvation through Christ. Because otherwise, this is coming down the barrel for you. Jesus is right to feel this wrath. To fear this wrath. So I don't... I don't understand. Jesus being fully human is meaning that he feels all of that. And it would be superhuman of him not to experience fear when facing the Father's wrath. It doesn't, it doesn't make sense to believe that he wouldn't feel that. So like any rational person who actually had any understanding about what the wrath of God is going to be like, Jesus says to the Father, if there's any other way, that we can go about this without me having to drink that cup. Let's do it that way. All right, if you got anything else in the hopper, anything else that you might suggest, let's do it that way. I would like for that to be the case. But not as I will, but as you will. Right? Not what I want out of this, but what you want out of this. Jesus puts his desires out there to the Father, but he is completely obedient to the will of God in it. Completely obedient. He says in that first prayer, he says that in his first prayer, and then he doubles down again on it the second and the third time. My Father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. In his grief, he seeks this time with his heavenly Father, and that time settles him. Okay, We see that in the way that he handles the rest of the events leading up to the crucifixion and the time on the cross. Jesus does not waver throughout the rest of this gospel. That poise alone should be enough proof to all the naysayers that he was the Messiah. 
I mean, look at the difference between Jesus and the rest of the disciples on this night. Peter, James, John, out cold. Right? They're asleep when they should be praying to avoid temptation. They're fast asleep. Jesus said that the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. So weak that once Jesus is arrested, they're going to flee. Despite all the bravado, I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. Oh, you're getting arrested. I'm out of here. How do you see the resolve of Jesus and the cowardice of the disciples and think, man, I'm just not sure after that prayer in the garden that Jesus is the guy. Jesus faces the temptation to run away from what he's about to face by praying about it. He comes back from that time in prayer ready to see everything through. Grieved to the point of death, comes back from that time alone with prayer to God and is steady as a rock and sees it through. Let's go on from there. This brings us to his betrayal, verses 47 to 56. While he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, suddenly arrived. A large mob with swords and clubs was with him from the chief priests and elders of the people. His betrayer had given them a sign. The one I kiss, he's the one. Arrest him. So immediately he went up to Jesus and said, Greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. Friend, Jesus asked him, Why have you come? Then they came up, took hold of Jesus, and arrested him. At that moment, one of those with Jesus reached out his hand and drew his sword. He struck the high priest's servant and cut off his ear. Then Jesus told him, Put your sword back in its place, because all who take up the sword will perish by the sword. Or do, you not, or do you think that I cannot call my father, and he will provide me here and now with more than twelve legions of angels? How then would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen this way? At that time, Jesus said to the crowds, Have you come out with swords and clubs as if I were a criminal to capture me? Every day I used to sit teaching in the temple, and you didn't arrest me. But all this has happened so that the writings of the prophets would be fulfilled. Then the disciples deserted him and ran away. So Jesus or Judas comes with a mob, and he betrays Jesus with a kiss. And you may have noticed that in his greeting, he addresses Jesus as rabbi once again. No affiliation with Jesus as a disciple at all. As all this is happening, when they came forward to arrest Jesus, one of the disciples decides to fight to protect Jesus from his arrest. So he draws his sword and just starts swinging. Right? And we know from the other gospel accounts that this is Peter. Peter. Guy that flies off the handle at the drop of a hat, pulls his sword, and cuts off a dude's ear. And I wonder if it was at this moment, right, as these men are coming forward to arrest Jesus, as they're coming forward and they're putting hands on Jesus, I wonder if everything finally came into focus for him. Right, like this is really happening. Maybe in that moment, Jesus' words are still ringing in his head about his abandonment and his denial. Maybe there's already some guilt settling into his heart because Jesus just asked him to be with him in that final hour. Right? Just be with me. Stay awake. Pray. And he failed at that. Peter being full from dinner. Plus, I mean, this is the tail end of the day. 
I mean, he's already walked two miles to get into Jerusalem, not to mention all the stuff that he had to do to get prepared for the Passover. They've eaten a big meal, and it's nighttime. He's tired, and so he feels like he let Jesus down. We don't know what his motivation was in all this, but we know he's suddenly ready to fight to keep Jesus from being taken. And in the moment of aggression, he cuts off the ear of the high priest's servant. And because of this action, Jesus rebukes Peter once again. <laughs> Nonstop. He tells him, all who take up the sword will perish by the sword. And he reminds Peter that he is not helpless. Right? This is not happening to him. He's allowing it to happen. Okay? At his request, the Father would send more than 12 legions of angels to deal with all of this if Jesus desired it. Just like that. One request, 12 legions of angels. This mob is gone. But if he were to call those angels down, then the scriptures would not be fulfilled. So in saying this, we see the resolve of Christ to be obedient. We see that he has settled in his soul, right, to do as the Father has commanded. He is going to be obedient to the point of death at the cross by the hands of wicked people. And he's going for us. In closing out our passage, Jesus acknowledged again that all of this is happening so that the prophecies would be fulfilled. And in fulfillment of the prophecy in Zechariah that Jesus mentioned earlier, the disciples run away. Right? All of a sudden, the bravery just dissolves and they all take off. Now, I don't know if you noticed, but this passage of Scripture is full of of human weakness. It's absolutely full of human weakness. We see in here the weakness of Jesus as he is grieved to the point of death at what he's getting ready to endure. We see in this the weakness of Peter, James, and John as they fell asleep instead of praying against uh, temptation as Jesus instructed them to do. We see the weakness of all the disciples as they desert Jesus. Right? We even see the weakness of Judas as he lets this idol of money stand between him and a proper understanding of who Jesus really was. And then, on top of all of that, we see the weakness of the mob. Right? The mob showed up at night with swords and clubs in this remote spot. Right? even though Jesus used to teach daily in the temple, right? Right in the middle of Jerusalem. I was there every day, unarmed. You could have done this in that spot at any time, and yet you chose tonight. When I'm out here with these guys, nobody else around, you chose now. They knew if they took Jesus in front of the crowds, there would be a revolt. And so in their weakness, they chose the easier route to get rid of Jesus without a fuss. So we see their weakness here as well. Their cowardice and their deceit reveals their weakness. Out of all the weakness 
that we see exemplified in these verses, only Jesus shows us the proper way that we should deal with our weakness. We handle our weakness by going before God in prayer. All right, we're all going to experience weakness of some sort at some point in our life. And what do we do with that? We take it before the Lord in prayer. If that was necessary for Jesus, who had no sin whatsoever in his life, how much more do we need it when we, can, we sin constantly? All right, Jesus experiences this weakness. He goes before the Father. What do you do when you experience this weakness? What you should do is be putting that before the Father in prayer. And notice how all this played out. In his burden and grief, Jesus spends time with his heavenly Father. And this is just me, all right? So this is not scripture at all. But I don't think that Jesus really thought that there might be another way, right? He mentions twice in this passage that this was all happening so that scripture could be fulfilled. I said, I don't think he legitimately went before God with this notion that this was actually going to change. All right? He just wanted it to be different. Okay? He knew that the cross and the cup was God's way of atoning for the sins of his people. He knows that he is a sacrificial lamb that's going to take away the sins of the world. He simply wished that there was another way, and he made that desire known before God. Right? Nothing wrong with that. Right? That was not a sinful request. It was how he was legitimately feeling in his humanity, and he put that request before God. But what we see here is that he made the time to be with the Father. Despite knowing what the answer to his prayer was going to be, he still spent time with the Father. That's the only place that we're going to find ultimate comfort in our distress. Right? Even when we have good people around us, right? We've got people that we love, that we cherish, people that you know have gone to church with us for years, decades, maybe, right? That care for us more than we can even express. We can have them around us, but eventually they're going to let us down. Right? Jesus had his, his three guys, the guys that were with him through thick and thin, and when it came time for him to be there, for them to be there with him, they were asleep. It's going to happen. Right? People are going to let us down. We can't rely on our stuff. We can't rely on institutions. The only constant that we can rely on without fail is God. And that's where Jesus goes when he is burdened to the point of death. He wanted to be in the Father's presence. While in the Father's presence, Jesus was real in his prayer. He acknowledged what he wanted before the Father. The Father knows what the Son's heart is before he ever utters a request. So there's no point in fluffing up this request or pretending that he's not feeling something that he actually is or that he is feeling something that he's actually not. Right? There's no reason for you to have pretense in your prayers before the Father. He knows you intimately. He knows every thought that you will ever think before you have ever thought to think it. So Jesus wants the cup to pass 
from him. He doesn't want to be separated from the Father. He doesn't want to endure God's wrath and the coming cross and everything else that comes with it. But he's willing to endure it because the Father wills it. Who would want that? But he's willing because that is the will of the Father. And finally, he submitted himself to God's will either way. No matter what the outcome of this prayer is, I'm I'm with you. Whether he got what he asked for or whether things continued down the path that they were on, Jesus was resolute to obey the Father at all costs. Whatever the command was, Jesus was going to do it. It did not matter what it cost him. He was going to be obedient. There are times in our lives where God is glorified in our struggle. Right? There are also times in our lives when God is glorified from removing the struggle. Right? We never know what that time is going to be until we take that before God in prayer. But we know that God is glorified one way or the other. Paul gives us an example of this in 2 Corinthians 12, verses 16 to 10. He says, For if I want to boast, I wouldn't be a fool because I would be telling the truth, but I will spare you so that no one can credit me without something beyond what he sees in me or hears from me, especially because of the extraordinary revelations. Therefore, so that I would not exalt myself. All right, pause right there for a second. So because of all this extraordinary stuff, that Paul has in his life, the, the relationship that he has with the Holy Spirit and how he's seeing all of this stuff, right? God understands that Paul needs to be humbled, okay? This can get out of control if he's not careful. So he says, especially because of the extraordinary revelations, therefore, so that I would not exalt myself, right? A thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan, to torment me so that I would not exalt myself. Considering this, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it would leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient to you, for my power is perfected in weakness. Therefore, I will most gladly boast all the more about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may reside in me. So I take pleasure in weaknesses insults, hardships, persecutions, and in difficulties for the sake of Christ. For when I am weak, then I am strong. When we come to the end of ourselves and then we lean into God, we're going to find an infinitely more, (laughs) a depth of strength that is infinitely more powerful than anything that we could hold on to ourselves. It's a good thing for us to come to the end of ourselves. It's a good thing for us to need to go to the Father in things. If we can handle it all ourselves, then we will never, ever see the need for the cross. But when God breaks us down in trials and tribulations, when he breaks us down with suffering, insults, hardships, whatever it may be, then we realize that we need something beyond ourselves and that we can't get to it on our own. And so we can cry out like Paul who said three times, please take this away from me. And God said, no. God said, no. He said, my strength is made perfect in your weakness. People will see how good and great I am as you continue to worship and follow me even though it's hard. Even though it's not what you want. I am glorified in your weakness. In light of this, 
We should follow Christ's example and we should be willing to submit ourselves to whatever God would will us to go through. Right? We can present the desire for these things to go away as Jesus did. God, he was real with that. But he also said, whatever it takes, whatever it takes for you to be glorified, I will do. Not as I will, but as you will. So church, as you struggle with your suffering, whatever it may be, be real with God. Ask him to remove it if he will. But also ask him to give you the strength to bring him glory in the face of it all and be willing to submit yourself to his will no matter what. Let's pray together. Father, I come before you grateful for the cross. I'm grateful for the example that Jesus has set, that we can see his humanity and his weakness, and that it reminds us that like, he knows. He knows everything that we have ever gone through, and he came out the other side perfect so that he could be our sacrifice. And Lord, I pray that we would be people who cling to that in the face of our weakness. And when we fall and fail, as we do every single day, Lord, I pray that we would remember that you still love us, that our righteousness has nothing to do with us, our worthiness has nothing to do with us, and everything to do with Jesus. And Lord, if there's anybody here struggling with that today, I pray that they would remember that, that the Holy Spirit would bring to mind the beauty of the gospel and how everything about that is about Jesus and not about us. And I pray that we could repent of sin, that we could let go of hardship and anger, Lord, that we could pursue you and your will in all that we do. And I ask this in your son's precious name. Amen.